Welcome to the Voices of Wall Street podcast, a show uncovering the news and trends that matter most for companies and their stocks across technology, media, retail, gaming, and more. I'm Tim Stenebeck, and in this episode, we're talking staying at home, specifically working out at home in the unbelievable rise of Peloton. Peloton's stock price has risen by more than 200% since the pandemic began. Demand is so high for its signature spin bike that it can take as many as 11 weeks to get a bike delivered to you. But can Peloton continue to climb higher? Or will it fizzle when a vaccine is developed and gyms open again? Is it just the latest exercise fad? I mean, remember Ty Bow and Jazzercise? Joining us on the show today is Jason Helfstein, head of internet research at Oppenheimer. He's got an outperform rating on the company's stock and a price target of $50. We're also joined by Jim Bianco, president and CEO of Bianco Research, for a more macro view. Jim argues that our behavior has permanently changed, so even when a vaccine arrives, we won't be traveling or going out to eat or shopping at brick-and-mortar stores the way that we used to. In short, things won't go back to normal. Now, here's Oppenheimer's Jason Helfstein. Jason, thanks so much for taking the time. Sure. Thanks for having me. So we got to talk Peloton because the company shares are more than 100% higher. <laughs> They've gained more than 100% since the start of the year. Certainly at this point, seeming like a clear winner of the stay-at-home trend. My question for you is, are you confident that enthusiasm for the stock and, and the product will continue as the economy hopefully opens back up and eventually perhaps people get back to the gym? So, uh, yes. And for a few reasons, one, uh, they are selling you a relatively expensive piece of hardware. Um, and so if you purchase the bike or maybe in the future, a treadmill, you can't get them right now. Um, you know, you're not going to immediately give up on it. And so, I mean, really, that's really why this plays in so well. It's while there are other services, perhaps where you can now, you know, subscribe to a monthly adver uh, monthly exercise program and there's numerous companies out there doing that um, you don't have the skin in the game like you have when you purchase a peloton bike and so I think coming out of this sure will people want to diversify their exercise um, but I think it's going to be more they're going to diversify potentially with boutique mm -hmm. um, and I think ultimately this probably comes out of kind of the big box gym where you you know you previously went there for cardio, you won't do cardio there. You'll do cardio in your Peloton, and you'll supplement that with other uh, boutique gym type activities. It's so interesting that that's part of your thesis because I, I, I do feel like people buy ambitiously exercise equipment that is expensive, and, and and sometimes it turns into sort of like really expensive, ugly decoration in your home because they're not using it. Oh well, uh, the Peloton becomes a really nice looking uh, coat hanger. Is, is <laughs> some of the joke that people have made. Look. We'll see. I mean, the fact that, you know, there is a subscription in addition to buying the hardware, the company, like we can kind of see churn, right? So to the extent if, if the thesis is that, um, oh, people have it, but they're canceling the subscriptions, but maybe they don't sell the bike right away because maybe like, you know what, let me cancel for a month or two and see if I want to come back to it before I sell it. Um, we'll kind of see that. Something else is right now, 
Used Pelotons basically go immediately. If you can even find a used Peloton on eBay, it doesn't last for long because there's now a backlog to get the bikes new. And so one of the beauties of their model is we think that because there's such a good, healthy resale market for this, even if you decide, okay, you know what, I really do miss my gym and I don't really like doing, you know, Peloton cardio, whoever buys the bike from you will then activate the subscription. And that's where the company generates all its value. At the end of the day, if you look at the, the, the business model today, they're basically breaking even on selling the bike when you factor in the cost of the bike and the marketing cost. And then all of the economic value is through that uh, $40 a month uh, subscription. Yeah, it's like a razor and blades model, right? Oh, you, yeah. You're just buying the blade over and over again. And that's that monthly subscription. Well, the difference is no, but even the difference is most people will like not try to sell their Mach 3 handle, right? Right. Just throw it out. And then it's, can you convince the new person to buy, you know, the handle? Now, obviously, the new models, um, you know, that we've seen with that, you know, they give you a heavily discounted handle, right? So you could argue that, that, people do learn over time. But no, we really do think that this is very unique to the model um, that it's at the end, that as long as the majority of the equipment that they put in the market can be active, they've got a great business model. So so Peloton stock is is today trading above $64 a share. It's up another 2% today, but you have a price target still of $50 for the next 12 to 18 months. That's according to your most recent research note on the company. Um, why aren't you moving that higher? So, I mean, we tend to do like a mid-quarter update, which we put out May 27th. Um, and then they will report earnings in a few weeks and we'll kind of have another update. Um, so at the time, we went from 46 to 50 at the time. Um, I think if I looked at the comparable companies, the comp com comparable valuations have moved up. So you could probably justify a higher price target um, just on the higher comparables. But really, there is a natural limitation to how many bikes they can produce right now. Um, and that's what I think they're going to, that's probably the most important, I think, takeaway in the upcoming earnings call. What's their ability to increase production? They already plan to increase production ahead of the holiday season. Obviously, COVID has kind of right brought the holidays you know, into basically the middle of March. But it's really going to be more about not what we do with our estimates, you know, for the next two quarters, two calendar quarters, right? But what do we do with 2021 and 2022 based on their ability to increase production capabilities um, and then ultimately geographically span? Those are, those are really the two long-term drivers. What about from a product standpoint? What does Peloton have to do to remain innovative and at the same time, make sure to get more people into the Peloton family? Maybe they're not uh, the cyclists or, or they don't want to spin or they don't want a really expensive treadmill that you get with tread. What do they need to do in order to grow? Sure. So when the company came public, there was already speculation um, at the time and, and, you know, the company wouldn't confirm or deny, but the desire to have a, a lower price bike, because we know you can see kind of copycats out there who have lower price bikes, um, obviously maybe without uh as you know, shiny a display and the connected network, but you know, could you produce physically a bike less expensive? And and there's generally a belief that that's the case. It's sort of I like that's sort of like the Amazon Kindle model, right? Where where Amazon basically sells this hardware at cost, and then you just pay the content is what makes money for it. 
Well, well, again, so the current bike, they're selling at cost and marketing, right? You could technically, can you come up with a way to make the bikes le less expensive? Uh, you know, I'm not going to speculate how you do that, but there are people who believe they've over-engineered the bike, right? To be right. so durable, so high quality. Could you find a way to ultimately just make it less expensive? Um, the second would be, um, would you be willing to lose money, right? As opposed to break even, right? Lose money on it, knowing that you can make it back in subscription. So um, that, so those are kind of like, that was the idea floating around. However, when you, um, when you look at what, what COVID did, it, it brought them so much demand for the current product, right? That we know that they're sold out and they keep pushing out the number of weeks you have to wait. Um, right now, I think that that's probably on a back burner. Look, the tread, um, they thought there was demand at that price point. Now, albeit they were kind of positioning it at the high end of the market, um, again, something like a Woodway, which is over $10,000. And so kind of, you know, their tread was coming in at, you know, half the price of that. Um, and, you know, if you look at the market, boot camp is, is many times more popular in America than spinning is, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a clear acknowledge out there that, you know, getting into that boot camp audience, um, you know, is much more important. Like, you know, look, so you have to ask yourself, why did they stop doing tread? You know, initially it was a thought of like, you can carry a bike into your house yourself, depending on how healthy you are, right? You can't carry a tread into your house. So it was like COVID. That being said, I think we all know that like there are safe ways now for people to bring furniture and other things into people's houses. And so now is it more as a function of they just want to use all their delivery capacity for bikes that are much quicker and easier to set up potentially than a treadmill, right? So we just kind of don't know that. Um, and so I, again, I, I just like they're making these kind of, I think more shorter term business decisions um, in, in real time. But look, the tread will come back. And then I think, again, there's a widespread view that we know you can produce a treadmill for less than $5,000. Maybe it won't be um, um, uh, slat driven, right? Which is the kind of higher quality walking service. You could, you'll go belt driven. You can produce easily a treadmill for the consumer for, you know, $1,200 or $1,500 or $2,000. That is still considered a premium treadmill. So the thought is that comes, there's been other speculation. Do they have a rowing machine? Um, right. There's already there. You know, you're already seeing ads of like the Peloton of rowing. Yeah. Well, there's going to be the Peloton of everything. Right. I mean, that's what you do when you have, you know, look, when something becomes, um, you know, a verb like <laughs> Google it, Zoom me. Right. Like when people start referring to like, you know, let's go Peloton. Right. Like, you know, so you you could argue, uh, you know, a copying is the is, is the best, um, you know, compliment. But. You have, you have that. Look, there's a question about, you know, Mirror or Lululemon's buying Mirror. Um, do they want to have, like, their own version of a Mirror? Um, you have, uh, what is it, Tonal, I think, yep. who have the Mirror with then kind of, like, uh, um, resistance equipment, right? So you have that. So, look, I think they have broad aspirations to be the one-stop fits-all for fitness. I just – I think the question is you have to just think about – again, they've shown you they're not even meeting the demand for the bikes right now, right? To physically be able to produce that. Um, you know, so I think we're still, it just shows you how early innings we are. Um, there's also been a discussion of like, is the current 
you know, basically finance the bike for three years um, and pay a monthly subscription. Is that the right uh, model? Should they have a rental model? So maybe you, they rent you, you basically get a bike and the subscription for pick a number, $75 a month, right? Um, which if you have two people in your household, that kind of blows away any other fitness option you can come up with. And you have access to that bike as long as you want it. At any point you don't want it, you give it back. Now, there's obviously a cost to, you know, being what they call reverse logistics, um, being able to like retrieve it from you. There's a cost and do they need to refurbish it? And so when they, you know, they launched, was it late last year, their home tr trial program um, where effectively you could have a bike for 30 days risk free. And that was kind of their way to start testing like, okay, for the people who don't want it, how damaged does it get? you know, bringing it back, all that. So look, I think that there's going to be a lot of iteration and learning. And right now they're, again, cannot keep up with consumer demand for the current product. So right now it probably doesn't make an enormous amount of sense to, you know, take on additional challenges until they can actually meet the current consumer demand for bikes. One thing that I've always found fascinating about Peloton, and we really saw this when the company was preparing to go public, and filed its S1 that was just this wealth of information is that the company's growth has been so closely tied to the success of that app only subscription. So for those people who don't know, you can get this Peloton app without the bike for around 13 bucks a month. And what that's done is it's created a pipeline of, of loyal consumers who've then converted from the app only subscribers to, to bike buyers. What's your outlook for, for growth there? Sure. So Look, originally it was more expensive. I think it was like $19.99 and then they took it down and you know, now they're at $13.99. And I think you originally was 30 days free and there was a period of time it was 90 days free during COVID. So uh, so yes, you you have it right. The way they've looked at it, it's a, it's a pipeline. In this recent quarter, they grew connected fitness subscribers 94% year over year while digital subscribers grew 64 So. Um, look, they don't, or up to this point, haven't really marketed the digital only app. And so, and what we know is digital only apps have very high churn, right? Whereas the bike has very low churn. And so the question is, is there a way to actually come up with a standalone business model where you spent money to market to get a consumer to download the digital only app that actually had like a lifetime value you know, cash flow attached to it. And, and that's, I think, what they're struggling with. So for now, for the most part, yes, that app is a great top of the funnel feeder into the bike. Um, the reality with the bike growing faster than digital app, and look, we'll see in the June quarter what happens. I mean, our expectation is that, um, you know, the bike, we have, I think, 115% growth for connected fitness. They probably do better than that. And then digital only, we're 105 but the point is, you still have connected fitness growing faster than digital, right? So for this really to act as a true feeder, the question is like, do you, is there a point where you actually get digital subs to grow faster than bike? Which goes back to my first point, they're still not fulfilling demand for people who just want to flat out buy a bike. Because how many people are turned away when they go to the website right. and it says, you know, it's eight weeks, nine weeks, 10 weeks, and you say, forget it. Um, and then... Do they go and download the digital app or do they just maybe they do go to get a NordTrack or, you know, something else out there that, that, that can fulfill the need or just do nothing and say, you know what, 
I'll just keep doing what I'm doing and just not do Peloton until, um, you know, the, the wait times come down. So, so I've, I've interviewed John Foley, the founder and CEO of Peloton before, and, and he's always, and this was before the company went public. It was, this was close to two years ago. And he, he liked to compare then Peloton being the Netflix of connected fitness and this being more of a content and tech company than it was a fitness company. But Netflix spends so much money on its content and that's created huge cash flow issues for the company. It hasn't, it hasn't affected the way the company has been viewed by investors recently, but where does content cost come into play for, for Peloton? So I think the, 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 the connection or the correlation he was drawing was, you know, all to, originally Netflix was basically a renter of Hollywood's content, right? Even going back to DVDs, you could argue, right? And then once they realized the value is in originals, and then the value is in owning that, so it's in your library forever, right? right. Um, and the idea that while you and I may watch Netflix, and it's almost impossible now to watch everything, but maybe in the early days you've watched everything, somebody who came on two years later like hadn't seen that, right? And it's always there. Um, when if you looked at the history of most media, things were windowed and things were not you know, there perpetually. Um, and so what, what Peloton, there, his, his his correlation is they produce a class um, and you can look, I mean, look at some of these classes that a teacher recorded nine months ago and how many people took it. I noticed there was one instructor who just had a million people take, I think it was like a 10 or 20 minute abs workout. She had a, a million people have now taken it. Wow. Right. So like, I think that's the point. And this was recorded way, way long, long ago and it will be on there forever. And Someday she'll be able to say, like, I don't know, she's the first fitness instructor who's at, you know, I don't know how many millions of people take her her class. And so I think that's where they're going. And as you produce the content one, it has it has shelf value. Sure, people want refresh. You know, they want things with new music and all that. But look, classic rock rides are still some of the most popular rides. And that music is, you know, what, 30, 30 years old, <laughs> 30 years old. So Look, I think he's he, he's right. Um, now, obviously, Netflix has a very low cost to entry, right? You you know can basically try it for free and then pay ten dollars a month, right? Um, you know, more or less. Obviously, the you know the cost of entry of Peloton is higher. That's why I think they are focused on physical stores because if they think if they can get you on a bike in a store, you go, wow, this feels different than you know the bike I rode at my gym or they get you to take a spin class, right? And you're like, wow, this, this you know, I, I get it. And so, yeah, he's, he, he's got something. I mean, there's definitely, um, there, there, there is similarities to the business, albeit, you know, I would say out of the two, Netflix, you know, um, right now has a, has a more efficient uh, model right now because they don't have to produce hardware. Well, pushing pushing the Netflix metaphor even further, Netflix's growth in the past really past few years has come from the international markets. Um, how big of, it, of an opportunity is international for Peloton? So yeah, look, they you know when they went public, they kind of talked about certain markets. Um, you know, our view. Hold on, I want to pull this data. So. You know, when, when we look at the markets, if we segment it and we say, um, you know, basically people who are making 
um, you know, assuming they can produce, you know, a second bike that costs less, but let's just say you were to target people who make over $60,000 household income with three people per household, meaning like there's at least one child because that really kind of, I think adds a ton of value to people. That's about, and you, you look at the U S Canada, UK, Germany, and Australia, um, and Germany, they're already in there. UK, they're there. And Australia, we think that's a natural extension for them with the English language. That's about 35 million households that they um, could be targeting. And so based on that, um, this year, they're on track for about 3% penetration. So mm. you, know, you can kind of guess what that number goes to. But I think by any kind of math, the penetration is very low. Look, I think the debate was always been, what is the right household level? You know, was it 75K? I think we've done some analysis. Like, you know, if it was 100,000K in three people, then your target addressable market is like 19 million people in those markets, right? And so part of this comes down to like, how much do people value this, right? And look, when Apple, you know, launched the iPhone, you had many people saying like, you know, only upper income people are going to buy iPhones, right? Well, we found at least in the US, that's not true, right? I mean, it is, you know, you have across the economic spectrum. And so look, I think that's the question, like how broad of a product can this be, you know, or is, or is this product really gonna be more of a product for upper income people? So answer the question for the Peloton haters out there, is Peloton a fad? Um, look, I think that you could look at things like soul cycle and look at how successful it was now clearly COVID hurt that success but um as you know soul cycle you know had planned to go public presumably they shelved that plan because the growth they thought wasn't good enough so i think that probably tells you that there was some type of you know either over expansion right of physical studios or faddish or you know, did they ultimately see that, you know, it was going to go digital and they just didn't move fast enough and they knew they didn't have a digital story properly baked at the time of the IPO and that all the investors, you know, would have asked them, well, you know, how are you going to compete with Peloton, right? Um, who was much smaller, but around at the time. Um, look, I think that's why they acknowledge, you know, the need to go into um, into other verticals. I mean, I'll throw you a statistic at you. I mean, Orange Theory is four times more popular than spinning. And if you kind of look at full body, CrossFit, Barry's, um, boot camps, like that, that's 26 times more popular. So what we do know is fitness is very popular. Um, spinning is one form of fitness. I think Peloton wants to be the solution for all of your fitness needs. And just over time, how do they expand that? You know, we've talked about the treadmill, but just into other areas. And if you can properly expand that, you make sure that this is not a fad. Well, it certainly uh, performed incredibly well this year during the pandemic. Jason, thanks so much for taking the time. It was great to talk sure. to you. Sure, thanks for having me. So the key to Peloton's endurance is expanding into other areas as successfully as it has into cycling. Look, investors certainly seem confident that they'll pull it off. Now, shifting gears. Many people think or perhaps hope that a vaccine will get us back to normal. But Jim Bianco, the president and CEO of Bianco Research, says think again. And we just need to look to China to see what the new normal looks like. 
Jim, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. So there's a lot of debate over what the next step should be once the current stimulus arrangements come to an end. In fact, that's what Congress is trying to hash out right now. What are your views on how the U.S. should handle the next phase of economic support? You know, that's a that's a complicated question, because I think that there's two ways that it's being viewed, considering we're on a Wall Street uh, uh, podcast. One way is how is the stimulus going to affect the markets? And the markets like stimulus. They like what the Fed is doing. They like the federal government um, uh, supporting aggregate demand and they want more of it. And if we get less of that, I think that the markets will take a move backwards. Now, the real economy, let's not confuse that with the uh, markets. Um, it probably could use a little bit less of the stimulus. Uh, Labor Secretary Eugene Scalia was on Bloomberg recently, and he had a couple of interesting statistics just to put this into perspective. Um, we got The federal government is kicking in an extra $600 a week in unemployment insurance. And that's set to run out at the end of the month. Which is set to run out at the end of the month. You know what they kicked in in 2007 to 2009? $25. It was, yeah, $25. $25 bucks a week. So we've got $25 a week. We've got up 24X. In the so, so what do you mean What do you mean when you say that the real economy doesn't necessarily need the stimulus? Because ideally, the amount of unemployment insurance one should get is about 60% of your paycheck. And the $600 is way above that. And it creates a bunch of disincentives. Uh, and I think that those disincentives are real. And that if they were to target more that 60% level of what you were getting before, that would be a better, better metric to use. So, so you think people would go back to work if they got less in stimulus? I know uh, anecdotally, I already know several companies that have told me exactly that, that they're having a hard time getting people to come back or to hire people at what was the pre-pandemic levels because they're getting so much on unemployment. Uh, but it's 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 sort of there's another part of this, and the other part of this is is demand for employees. Are those is that demand there for imply employees to go back to work? You know, are companies hiring again? Yeah, that's a good question, and um, you know, it's kind of a chicken egg kind of question. If you if you want to say no, they need the six hundred dollars a week because companies are not ready to demand employees. Uh, they kind of go hand in hand. They're never going to be ready to, to demand employees unless we start to get the economy going in that respect. But what I'm really trying to point out is that what the market wants and what the economy needs, not necessarily the same thing. And that's going to be the hard part for policymakers to try and, you know, drive, drive through right now. I see both sides of the equation. It's I understand the, 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 the idea of we want to keep the stimulus going because this is a, a one-time event and markets want that. They want, uh, they want, they're happy with that. But on the other side, I know a number of small businesses that are saying, you know, whether you're in the landscaping business or in the restaurant business, if you're still open or the like, you're saying, look, come on back to your $12 an hour job or $13 an hour job. And they're like, no, I'm getting more being out of work. I'm not going to come back. I know right. technically you, the, the employees, I know the federal government says if the employees say no, you're supposed to report them because they've gotten an offer, an offer to come back to work and they're not. No one's going to do that. Um, you know, so no one's going to narc on them because you're never going to get them to go back to work if you, if, you, if you wind up doing that. So it's a nice sentiment, but it's not really going to come to pass. So, so, so where, 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 go ahead. I was just going to say it's a difficult issue to work through. 
So where do you think we are in, in, in this recovery right now? Or are we even in a recovery? Because we're still back to an area uh, where we're seeing, you know, a thousand deaths a day from coronavirus. Yeah, the economy is is recovering, but it seems to in the last couple of weeks has stalled. Uh, the num- The pace of hiring, if you go by looking at the unemployment claims, has kind of stalled out at about 1.2 million a week. Uh, and the, what seems to be driving it, in fact, what I think is the overall dominant economic statistic right now is the case count. Now, every time I tweet about the case count or bring up the case count, I inevitably get people to ask me, what about the death rate? What about the case fatality rate? What about the hospitalization rate, the ICU rate? None of that matters. What matters is when the case count goes up in a state, it's very clear from the mobility data and from the policy standpoint, there's a reaction. Your state, if you happen to be in a state where your case count is rising, you are less mobile, you choose to be less mobile, and your state is probably in some state, uh, in some form of reversing its reopening process. Just because- And what you're saying, what you're saying is that you're not spending money in that case. Right. And you're not able to spend money. Right. If your state is still, if your state is reopening and in the case count is low, New York, New Jersey are two big examples of that. Uh, then um, you continue along and you still see that growth. So, yeah, you can argue about hospitalization and all that other stuff, but that's not what drives the policy. It's the amount of cases. And what drives, uh, I was going to say investor, but drives consumer behavior is the case count. When they open up. And consumers consumers are the engine of this economy. Right. When they open the paper and the paper screams at them or they maybe they look at their phone to kind of update the metaphor uh, and, and it screams at them, my city or my state is making new highs, California, Texas, Florida. You react. You react by not going out. You react by spending less. Doesn't matter whether or not the governor has actually formally instituted a rollback in the reopenings. That seems to be what's driving it. And so what I'm getting at is this higher move in cases over 60,000 a day is stalling the economy. That is stalling the economy right now. Uh, And that's going to be the biggest problem that we're going to have, at least in the short term. We're going to need a peak in cases and we're going to need a big drop in order to give people the confidence to continue to be more aggressive in their spending and their hiring practices, which they were until about a month ago. Well, what about a vaccine? Because there have been a lot of headlines in recent days about progress being made uh, with clinical trials of vaccines. So how critical is a vaccine to the health of the economy? Are we ever going to return to normal without a vaccine? So let's look at an example of what we want. Uh, A vaccine, what does a vaccine do? Uh, It would create a situation where the case count goes to essentially zero. Do we have an example of that? Yes, we do. It's China. Now, you can argue the data is wrong in China, but at least the data that China is giving to the public, they have now gone five days in the entire country, 1.4 billion, where the virus started, reporting zero new cases. They have reported on average over the last two months about 20 cases a day. Look, more people slip and fall in the bathtub and have problems in China than they are from the coronavirus. Now, that's what you want. You want to get the case count down to 20 a day and report zero in some days. And they're doing that without a vaccine. Right, right. So they've effectively, <laughs> they've effectively reached what you would do with a vaccine. But here's my point. The Chinese retail, retail sales are down 20%. Their mobility numbers are down 30%. Their mass transit numbers are down by half, even with 
zero being reported over the last five days and 20 cases being reported over the last two months. But are, but are cases down because retail sales are retail sales down because cases are down or vice versa? Are people not be, are people not able to move around the same way that they were because of flare ups? No, I, what's happening in China is the psyche has been damaged. They are going back to work. Now, there are other statistics showing that the amount of people going back to work in China and that there are output on the industrial level is about 100 percent of what it was pre-virus. Remember, it's a Chinese, it's a communist country. They've been ordered back to work. So they're going back to work because they've been ordered back. But the psyche has been so damaged by this in China that they are electing not to go back to to the restaurants, not go back to the stores not travel as much as they did, which is another form of spending as well, too. And even though the case count is at zero, they're not all the way back and it may take some time. So like I said, if if you could snap your fingers and say, here's a here's a vaccine and leave out all the sides about whether or not it works. Here's a vaccine. One shot. It works. It goes away. I still think it's going to take a much longer period of time for us to return to what we would refer to as normal. I know that the conventional wisdom is, oh, God, somebody just stick a needle in my arm and then let's all pretend it's January 2020 like this never happened. And let's just pick right up where we left off. Too late. You're saying it, you're, you're saying it will take time to do that because we have changed. Our habits have changed. Not only have our habits changed um, it, and they're not going to go back. The other thing I'd offer an argument to you, too, is that all of the trends that we see because of the virus, because of the pandemic, are accelerations of existing trends. The work from home trend, I'm at home, you're at home, we're all at home. The work from home trend was a thing before the virus. What it did was it massively accelerated it. My point is, if we were moving in that direction anyway, we're not going back. We're not going back. So so let me put this in stark terms. If you are a high powerful politician who made his Mark in, say, the New York City real estate market, um, I'll let you fill in the blanks. <laughs> and you're saying, look, this is terrible. Everybody's at home. They don't want to traffic my buildings, my big, tall, beautiful buildings in Midtown Manhattan, as he would. Yeah, I have no idea who you're talking Yeah, exactly. Um, and if we could only get them a vaccine and stick it in their arm, they'll all rush back to my big, tall, beautiful buildings in Midtown Manhattan. That ship sailed. That ship has sailed even with a vaccine that we will not go back. We will not go back to where we were in January 2020. Okay. We'll go back to something else, but not that. Look, I know this is a little out of your purview, but since you're so uh, bullish on the idea of of working at home, uh, being here to stay, what does this do to to real estate and super cities? What does it do to Manhattan? I I think it's in deep trouble. Now, let me be clear about working at home. About 30% of the American public can work at home. 70% can't. Um, the, and so I, I, I would argue to you that if you look at the studies or the surveys, do you like working at home? Surveys are about, you know, 45, 50% of the people that are working from home say that they like it. Do they have kids or not? Yeah, yeah. I think it's more like 80. I just think that it's politically incorrect to say it uh, as well. Too. Now, to be clear, I don't think anybody wants to work at home five days a week. I think they want to work at home two or three days a week. They want to be in an office to or or collaborate with their coworkers and their customers two or three days a week. What I'm arguing is all of a sudden 
the the of uh, the need for Manhattan real estate just went down by 50 percent. The need for Chicago, Mag Mile and Loop real estate. I'm in Chicago went down by 50 percent that, you know, if if I could get by with half of my real estate needs because I've only got half my workforce in the office at any given day, I'll tell I'll take that cost up savings. Also, from a customer, from a business standpoint, all my employees go and work at home. I'm saving a lot of my technology expenses. They're responsible for their own tech. They pay for their own internet connection. Uh, I don't have to have as big a staff of IT and support as I would in an office. So I, th- I think that means we're going to go to something different. We're not going to go back to where we were before. I think that the January 2020 economy, the month before the virus hit, that was an end of an era. We're going to go to a new era because what we're doing is we're accelerating existing trends. And by the way, the 70% that have to go to an office to work like a, um, a waitress, you know, waitress can't work at home, a, a, a teacher technically can't work, shouldn't be working at home if the students are in the schools. And we'll see if that happens. They benefit because, you know, traffic commuting times are, are much, much uh, faster now than they've ever been. Yeah, get those 30 percent, stay at home so that my commute that was 40 minutes is now 23 minutes uh, because, right. because traffic is congestion is way down as well. too. So they win as well, too, at it uh, as well. So I think that these were trends that were underway. So when we get that shot in the arm at the vaccine, it, it, we're not going to undo them. If these were forced trends on us because we don't like them, but we're forced to do it, wearing a mask is, is, is a forced trend on us that we don't like to do. The minute we get the, the shot in the arm with the vaccine, we're, all the masks are going to disappear instantly and we're never going to see them again. We don't want to do that. We do want to work at home to some degree. That's why it's going to be harder to, to pull that back. I want to go back to to China, uh, which we were talking about just a few minutes ago, because today tensions are rising again between the U.S. and China. The U.S. indicted two Chinese hackers for allegedly targeting American companies that are involved in virus and vaccine research uh, and then uh, ordered the shutdown of of China's consulate in, in Houston. Is the fragile relationship between these two economic powerhouses, is this a major risk to markets? I mean, here we are. China's supposed to buy billions of dollars worth of agricultural goods from the U.S. this year. That doesn't seem like it's going to happen as part of phase one's trade deal. Yeah, I think that the um, uh, the agricultural purchases have been largely in the marketplace assumed to not happen or at least a partial uh, bit of it is happening. As far as the trade tensions between China and the U.S., this is two years old. We've been talking about this, you know, basically... Since 2017, when Trump started really pushing hard um, on the Chinese as well. So this is really nothing new in that um, in that respect. So I don't think that it is a big worry. And why don't I think the market thinks it's a big worry? Because at the end of the day, we have a, a codependent relationship with each other. They need us. They need us. We need them. Uh, we would like to not be dependent on them uh, for various things. And maybe over a long period of time, we will move businesses and operations out of China, but we're not doing it right away. And they need us if they have their, if they have their workforce making stuff, we are a big market for them. So we can yell and scream at each other and we can close their consulate and they can threaten to retaliate. But at the end of the day, 
I don't think we're going to see anything really harsh because it would really be detrimental to both parties. And that's why they'll go to the ledge, but they won't actually jump in. Yeah, fingers crossed. Jim Bianco, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So there you have it. Bianco says that the U.S. and China will go to the ledge, but the country's codependence will prevent either country from going over the edge. I certainly hope so. And I hope you enjoyed the show. We have a great lineup for next week. Michael Pachter from Wedbush Securities joins us, and Tuna Amobi from CFRA will be on the show as well. We'll see you next time on the Voices of Wall Street podcast.